Hello and welcome to the Gladstone's Land podcast, brought to you by the National Trust for Scotland. Episode 11, Prayer Books and Presbyters. Hello, uh, we're back with the Gladstone's Land podcast. I'm Kate. And I'm Thomas. And we're up on the third floor again today. We have broken out and uh, we are up upstairs in the relative and peace and quiet yes, up here. quite a lot going on in the rest of the building today, isn't there? There is, yes. So we're hiding away up here and hoping that nobody makes us do something. Um, so, right, Thomas, what are we going to talk, to, talk about today? Well, today we're going to t- be talking a little bit more about the, the Reformation story. Mm-hmm. We, we started the Reformation with uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, in episode four, um, and and today we're going to be taking that story a little bit further and, and focusing around the career of Mr. William Struthers, mm-hmm. who was one of one of the notable residents who lived in Gladstone's was land indeed. at the same time as Thomas Gladstone and Sir James Crichton uh, and John Riddock, the merchant, and all of these people that we've been talking about so far. Um, the room, I, the room that we're in now, is that what we call the minister's chamber? It is. This was uh, one of the parts of part of this apartment would belong to William Struthers during the 1630s. So but that, he rented it. That's quite remarkable. We're going to be talking about him, and he he sat in this very room mm-hmm. some 300 years ago. So uh, look at that. Um, as I said, we we had we talked about the beginning of the Scottish Reformation a few episodes ago. We talked about the what's known as the Reformation of 1559, 1560, um, that is often thought about as the main event of the Reformation. Um, but it's really, really more in fashion now to see the Reformation not as an event, but a process. It wasn't over and done with by 1560. And it's not the case that after 1560, uh, everybody in Scotland was now a, a Presbyterian, signed up Presbyterian Protestant, and that the Church of Scotland, as we understand it today, was created. Um, it's better to think of it, really, that between about 1500 and 1700, there was a long reformation, mm-hmm. um, a, a process by which Scottish religion transformed from a single united and uh, Catholic church into several independent churches that were all doing quite different things and competing for the loyalties of Scotland's people. And that's by about 1700. Um, The 1560 Reformation is an important and the climactic event in that process, but there is a long process. What's key to understand about that, I think, is that the in 1560... The Church of Scotland broke from Rome and became Protestant, yes, but what did that really mean? Um, What it did not mean was that the Reformers set up a fully Presbyterian church with elders and Kirk sessions and regional assemblies called presbyteries. Um, It doesn't mean that they set up the Church of Scotland as we understand it today. Um, John Knox, who we talked about in episode four as well, and the, the reformers, they were in, what they were interested in was independence from Rome, the scripture in English, a higher standard of education, and and a theology. They were interested in the theology of justification by faith alone. That is, that it's not about what you do, it's about what you believe, and believing the right things, believing in, in Jesus, um, that is how you, you achieve 
salvation. The myth of the uh, of the Scottish Reformation, the 1560, is that in this whole process they abolished bishops and they got rid of all sacraments and formulaic prayers and services um, and that they encourage lots of lay involvement in the church um, and it's not clear that all of those things did take place um, many bishops actually joined the reformers and the protestant church was later to appoint what they called superintendents to oversee regions that didn't have a bishop and knox himself was keen on the sacraments and uh, in set prayers, um, he was actually very keen on on clericalism. That is, he thought that the ministers were very important um, because he was very he was he thought it was very important for ministers to be highly educated, so that they were able to impart this good proper theology to their their parishioners. Um, and when he'd been in charge of the English speaking church in Geneva. They'd been using a very strict service book. So, so he's actually quite, although he was very radical in some respects, and he was a, a fiery Protestant tearing down the, the, t- tearing down the established church <laughs> in some senses, he was also more moderate than we like to think of him today. But within a generation or so of the 1560 two parties began to emerge in the Scottish church. On the one hand, you had people who felt that the 1560 hadn't really gone far enough. Um, People like Andrew Melville, um, uh, who who was the the, the tutor of the king, the tutor of James VI, he really was a Presbyterian, um, and he wanted to go a lot further to get rid of um, a lot more of these trappings of uh, what they called trappings of popery, the set service book and the bishops and uh, some of the, the ceremonies that had been maintained. On the other hand, you had what became known as the Episcopalian faction, the people who were very happy being uh, being Protestant but also wanted to keep some of these some of these things that the bishops were important and mm-hmm. um, some and a set service book was important and th- things like that and a, a good analogy that I've I've heard for it is that they were like two different political parties coming in and out of power um, over the course of the, a few a few decades in the early 1600s, but they were still within the same church. Mm-hmm. It's not correct to think that um, there were two competing churches, a Presbyterian church and an Episcopalian church. They were both in the same church and they just were in and out of power at different times. The factor that really exacerbated these divisions was royal involvement. Mm-hmm. Um, when they'd had the Reformation, they hadn't really had a monarch involved. Um, you, we remember from the Mary Queen of Scots episode that the Scottish Reformation in 1560 had basically been had, had been pursued without the Queen's involvement. And then throughout much of the rest of the 16th century, the King, King James VI, was a baby, so he wasn't really involved in these things. Um, but when he when he he grew up he 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 started to try to become more involved in 1603 
he became king of England as well. So he was James VI of Scotland and James I of England. And he saw what a much more established Episcopalian church could be like with its prayer book and its bishops who were royal appointees and he liked what he saw. So he tried to favour the Episcopalian faction and make what were considered to be impositions in the Church of Scotland. Um, He tried to do that and his son Charles I tried to do the same. As we'll hear a little bit later on in this episode, William Struthers was very intimately involved in the dispute. So there's a sort of overview of where we are. That's the that's the state of of play in the Reformation, and actually that that traces the story up till where we set our episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, if we if we think of Thomas Gladstone and um, James Crichton and so on living in Gladstone's land in 1635 that's bang in the middle of this process slightly awkwardly we've done the episodes in the wrong order haven't we <laughs> this this one really should have come before the one on the the Jacobites but should have done but you know we've, you been, know, we've been all over with our I think, episodes um, so it's, uh... I, I think we'll be all right William Struthers was a particularly interesting character. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's one of these he's one of these figures who I'll just rearrange your notes. Yeah, rearrange my notes. We may keep that bit in the episode just to make them you know, <laughs> make them think how uh, uh, how uh, authentic this Prepared. is. <laughs> we he's one of these people who really cuts across um, politics and society. He was involved with a number of different. Um, events, different processes, mm-hmm. and so on. Um, he he was a a minister. He apparently trained and began his ministry in Glasgow, uh, and he moved to Edinburgh in 1614, where he remained until his death. We think he was an Episcopalian. Um, he was considered part of the Episcopalian party as opposed to the Presbyterian party, um, and he seems to have supported the king in some of these impositions, but crucially not all of them. And I think one of the things that his career does is actually show you how these things weren't polarised, that it wasn't that you had a whole bunch of Episcopalians on one side and Presbyterians on the other and they didn't want anything to do with each other. Lots of people had mixed views. Um, Lots of people thought that maybe this had gone far enough but they wanted to go a bit further with this. To give an example of that, he he was clearly favoured by the king because he, in 1617, he preached at the Chapel Royal in Holyrood and he used the English prayer book. So he must have been, he, he must have been um, au fait with that. And, um, but, but then later on, he was one of the authors of the petition against the five articles of Perth. Um, he, he, was, he was pardoned by the king um, for his his uh, insubordination but, <laughs> but it's it's interesting to note that within the same two within a span of two years he can have gone on from from preaching in the king's household to being uh the one of the the, the main op- opposers of, of him um in in 1619 he he preached from 
the pulpit at St. Giles. I have this quote here. Ye must learn from us, the ministers, and not us from you. Essentially, that, that's quite good articulating the clerical position, the saying mm-hmm. that we are the clergy, we know, and you, the, the, the laity, you, the, the elders. <laughs> well, yes, and I think but it's not just the hoi polloi, it goes right, you know, from, from the king down to the, no, the commoner, so it includes everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he, he went on to become one of the ministers at St. Giles. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure whether we've mentioned that before. We might, in, we might yeah. have done at the beginning. It's one of the things that's talked about on the tour. Um, you you can't you can't see St Giles from the windows unless you lean right you out. Have to have, yeah, you have um, to, to lean out, but you certainly can see it from the outside the front door. Mm. And so it would have been very close. Uh, it's a short stroll. Uh, yes, to work. a short stroll to work. Um, he was one of the ministers there, and then in um, in sixteen thirty three when Edinburgh was first made into a, a diocese, he actually became the first dean of the cathedral. That is the, the chief priest of the cathedral. That's when he died. So he, he didn't live to have any involvement in the second of the big crises, which we'll hear about a later. But mm-hmm. it, I think it's a really interesting character in the sense, obviously he's interesting to us because he lived here, um, but also... He he does demonstrate how it wasn't all black and white. Obviously, as a clergyman, he would have worn mostly black and white. But um, that, uh, well, I, I, Kate is our, our costume expert. I'm just I'm just here trying for cheap laughs. Um, I've certainly worn drab colours. I think he he demonstrates that although you might have been in the Episcopalian faction, that didn't mean you were with them in every respect. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a lot more overlap than uh, than we might have thought. But anyway, I notice that I've been doing a lot of the talking <laughs> it's been, so far. It's been a solid Thomas monologue so far. But one other thing that's always mentioned um, when in discussion of William Struthers in the context of the Gladstone's Land Tour is his involvement in something else, another major movement. Yes. And uh, what is that, so Kate? So this is the witch trials of the period. And actually, maybe in the future, we might do a whole episode on this because it is absolutely fascinating. But I'll give you a very brief overview now. Um, but by the 1630s, um, the idea of witchcraft and witch hunting and witch trials was incredibly prevalent in Scotland. Um, so witchcraft is actually first outlawed in Scotland in about 1563, um, around the same time that it is in England, but it, and, uh, interestingly, 1563—that's r- right, right after, after the, the the first episode of the Re- the Reformation, isn't it? Very much so. And this is one of the theories. No, no one really quite knows why witchcraft took hold across Europe and then later America in the way it does during the 17th century. But one of the theories is that it's tied up with this this big process of religious change. Um, another is that it's related. Um, to the changing role of women mm. around that time, um, because it was predominantly women that were persecuted under the witch laws. Um, so it is first outlawed, and there are some sort of early witch hunts, but without a huge amount of um, success, really. They actually, the earliest witch hunts in Scotland collapse. There aren't um, much in the way of persecutions. Um, it's not until James the Sixth goes to Denmark in 1589 um, and 
witch hunts have already become quite popular in Denmark Mm. and he really brings the idea back with him and he becomes absolutely obsessed with the idea of witchcraft and he writes some books Sorry, you can say. I was, going to, I was just going to say he. The reason he was in Denmark was that he married a Danish princess. Mm. His wife was Anne of Denmark. So did he? I think they got married there. He went to to Denmark to get married, mm-hmm. and so he obviously saw all these. Which it, it seems a bit of a daft thing to see on your uh, on your travels on your and travels bring and bring home. Um, but he but, becomes convinced that the storms he's countered on the way back from Denmark are caused by witches. He he really does sort of. I think obsession is the right word. He really mm. does become obsessed with the idea of witchcraft. Um, it's just and that he wrote he wrote a book on the subject. Mm-hmm. He actually wrote he published two books. One is called the Basilicon Doron, a book uh, sort of a, a how to guide mm-hmm. for, for for Renaissance kings. Um, and but, the other is demonology, I know. which is uh, um, has some incredible illustrate like woodcuts uh, that uh, go along with it. Uh, so he actually sort of gets involved. He um, personally supervises the torture of people who are accused of witches. He um, really sort of kickstarts this idea of witch hunts. Um, and sort of from this point onwards, we actually see somewhere between 4,000 and 6,000 people persecuted under the witch laws. And it's a phenomenal number. And it's actually considerably larger than the, the numbers that are persecuted in England. Mm. Um, so it really does become an integral part of Scottish culture around this period, this idea of, of witchcraft and persecution and accusation. Um, but where William Struthers comes into this is there is um, a trial in 1632 of a woman called Marion Muir, um, and she is based down at Leith and she's tried at Leith. But we see William Struthers' name crop up as an investigator in her trial. Mm. Um, so he wasn't out there witch hunting per se, but he was clearly involved um, in this particular trial and possibly others, but we do have him on record in that one. Um, and I think I think the takeaway from this is that this idea of witchcraft was so pervasive um, that the church and, and the king and the state were all really involved in it. Um, and as minister of St Giles, he had a role to play in that. One of the scary things about witchcraft at the time was that it was seen to be a a witness less crime mm-hmm. to quote the crucible arthur miller which is a, a famously a play about witchcraft in another very puritanical protestant context in north america he says there are by nature only two witnesses the accuser and the accused and that sort of thing encourages hysteria you know when you very don't so. you can't know Oh, well, obviously, I, I, it's, I, I guess it seems a little glib for us to say, obviously, nobody was a witch, um, because I guess who knows. But um, you, can't, you can't know whether somebody is or not. And it's so hard. I mean, obviously, looking back with our modern perspective on it, it's so hard to imagine the lack of understanding in, in mm. sort of science and daily life. And, and so all of these things that suddenly don't make sense to you can be explained by witchcraft. I think one of the, the things that we touched on a little bit earlier was that it seems to have been connected in some way to Protestantism. Mm-hmm. Um, and one explanation that I have heard is that the medieval spirituality had a lot of room for the unknown, 
for the supernatural because there were lots of things that you didn't have to explain. But a, ref a reformed theology, a, a, a Protestant Christianity, suddenly was claiming to be able to explain a lot more. And at the same time, you had lots of these other ideas, sort of rationalist ideas coming in from the Renaissance. And so suddenly you had this idea that we should be able to explain everything, um, or there's no space left in the supernatural world. You know, you're, you're tr one of the, the purposes of the Reformation was to drive all of the saints and relics and other kinds of folk spirituality out and have only Jesus. And so suddenly that, that gets rid of a lot of the room for things that you don't understand. Mm -hmm. And so therefore things that you don't understand become terrifying and must be to do with the devil. Um, yeah, very much so, so. A, a hysteria. Right. Well, so that was the career of of or of a, 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 a short summary of the career of, of William Struthers. A medium length summary and uh, and a sort of. A, a, little bit to situate us in the um, in the historical narrative as we were um, we've got a bit of a, a fun-filled episode today um, <laughs> because f first up we've got an interview with Robin McCaig who is actually the Thistle Chapel assistant at St Giles Cathedral mm, so we're having a little bit of a field trip just along the Royal Mile um, which I'm very excited about and then after that we've got um, this is uh, possibly a bit gimmicky, but uh, you have to bear with us. We managed to find a record of a Kirk session at St Giles, um, which, uh, in which Mr Struthers was uh, involved. And this is a dispute over kneeling in, at communion, a dispute as part of the dispute over the five articles of Perth. And we have transcribed that, and we're going to perform that for you as a little sketch. <laughs> I think perform might be a strong word. <laughs> uh, well, we were going to read it out for you anyway, so that's coming up later on. Um, so quite a lot to look forward to. Indeed. Welcome back to the Gladstones Land podcast, and I'm delighted to say that we're actually no longer in Gladstones Land. We are sitting in the Holy Cross Isle at St Giles Cathedral, about 100 metres down the road from Gladstones Land, and we are delighted to be joined by Robin McCaig, who is the Thistle Chapel Assistant uh, at St Giles. Robin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thank you for being here. Um, we are here to talk a little bit about St Giles and its role in Edinburgh's life in the in the in the 1630s. So, Kate, great. Okay, so I think really what I'd like to start with is just knowing a, a, a bit about what sort of role the Kirk would have played in people's lives in the 1600s. How important it would, would it have been? Certainly, from a social aspect, it was very important, certainly from the majority of people in Edinburgh. Its influence as you got into sort of the Highlands and Islands, perhaps less so, but for Edinburgh it was a, played a large part in social control. Uh, the rules of the Kirk were pretty strict on what you could and couldn't do. Uh, they would have affected everybody within Edinburgh. Certainly, yes. I mean, the, pretty much everybody would have been expected to attend church on a Sunday and 
there were Kirk councils, the presbyteries, the elders who could sort of bring you up on charges if you like, if you were accused of things like adultery, breaking the rules. Uh, I'd say Sabbatarianism was very strictly enforced. You went to church, and that was about it. Uh, there was no uh, no sort of they didn't like dancing, they didn't like music. Uh, any anybody who engaged in those sorts of things could find themselves in a lot of trouble. There would be special areas of the church where people who were out of favour were made to stand for the sort of general uh, disapproval of the rest of the congregation. Right, so not only was it was it somewhere that people were expected to be on a Sunday, it actually exerted a lot of, of control and a lot of um, sort of influence on people's it lives. Did, on certainly at this basis. time. It was only really when we get things like the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, that. when people sort of are moving about that the influence of the church begins to wane on that social level. Interesting. And did everybody in everybody in Edinburgh attend this church? No, uh, by this stage there would have been more churches. We date the foundation of St Giles to 1124 and at that time it was the parish church of mm-hmm. Edinburgh when Edinburgh was not even the entirety of the Royal Mile, so really just from the castle to this would probably have been of the edge of the medieval town in 1124. And then obviously when the Canongate was founded, that was a separate borough. Mm-hmm. But certainly by 1600, it was the principal church. Mm-hmm. We still, rather than calling ourselves a cathedral, officially call ourselves the High Kirk of Edinburgh, mm-hmm. suggesting that we are the, the principal Presbyterian Church of Scotland church. And mm-hmm. by 1600, yes, it would have been the religious centre and also because of the influence of the Kirk, increasingly the political centre of Edinburgh mm-hmm. as well. And you, you hit on a very interesting point. You, the, it's officially called St Giles High Kirk, um, but it's also sometimes called St Giles Cathedral. Um, could you explain why we have that dis- disparity? Indeed. For most of its history, St Giles was not a cathedral. Edinburgh was always in the Diocese of St Andrews before the Reformation, so there was a, never a bishop in Edinburgh itself. In the uh, late 1400s, St Giles gained the status of something called a collegiate church, which meant it was no longer under the direct jurisdiction of the bishop, and was headed by uh, a provost who was uh, mm-hmm. at one point Gavin Douglas, the very famous Scottish poet and priest. Uh, I believe he's supposed to have uh, translated the Aeneid into Gaelic and things <laughs> of that sort. Uh, but in the 1630s, in the period that we're especially interested in with Jenny Geddes and the National Covenant, uh, under Charles I, he gave us a royal charter, which did make us a cathedral. He created, sounds like a bit of a misnomer, but a Presbyterian Bishop of Edinburgh. Uh, originally uh, Forbes, though he died not long after, and then it became David Lindsay. And some people say that this royal charter was never revoked, even after uh, 1690, when we, the Church of Scotland, as we recognise it today, was created, uh, and we got rid of the bishop. The Royal Charter was never revoked, so we can still call ourselves a cathedral, yeah. even though we have not actually been, we have not had the cathedral, the seat of the bishop, for uh, over 300 years. <laughs> but yes, more properly, we call ourselves the High Kirk. Okay. And what would if this space have looked like for people coming here in the 1600s? Would it have been divided up? Would it have all been in the same space? Yes, it would have looked very different uh, in 1600. One of the reforms brought in by John Knox when he became the minister here in 1560 was to divide the church up into three main areas, three different congregations. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things the Presbyterian reformers very much objected to was this idea that the priests and the altar would be down here at the eastern end of the church. The majority of the congregation would be some some way away. So Knox wanted to create very much intimate spaces 
where the ministers and the congregation were very close together. So there would have been a, a partition in the western end of the church. Uh, that was the main area. That was known as the High Kirk. Uh, and that would have been where the majority of the, uh, the main services would have been held. But then there were another couple of congregations on this eastern side. And there were very literally well. walls put up yes. in the middle of the, inside the church. Uh, originally, I think, just wooden partitions. But yes, the church was uh, closed up. And it was only in the 1870s and 80s that they were taken down in what we call the Chambers Restoration. So it was only at that time you get this sense of space and light that we have in St Giles today. And what about decoration and things like that? I imagine would have looked quite different. Certainly, yes. Obviously, those early Presbyterians, very puritanical, very iconoclastic. So all the altars, all the statues that would have had been here... Mm were removed in the, uh, in the Reformation of 1559 when the Presbyterians took over. There was a, a statue of St Giles, the patron saint of the church, the patron saint of Edinburgh, that was famously thrown in the Norlock together with um, a supposed relic of St Giles, an arm bone, and the very fine reliquary that housed it was broken up and sold off the gold and the jewels and so forth. And if, there's not a lot of evidence for coloured glass stained glass in the church. We think there was a little bit that would certainly have been removed and up until the 1870s when uh, the windows looking down this, in the Holy Cross aisle were put in it would all have been plain glass right. in the church. Even in the 1870s it was quite controversial when this was put in for a Presbyterian church. But it was not entirely plain. We're told that um, Knox painted these pillars uh, green and the walls white. Um, some people <laughs> might think that green and white are not commonly associated with uh, Presbyterianism uh, in Scotland today, they tend to be the colours of uh, some football teams that are traditionally Roman Catholic. But that's, by all accounts, how he decorated the church. Maybe they were his favourite colours. Who knows? <laughs> um, let us then proceed to the climax of the of the story. By the 1630s, Scotland had a new king, Charles I, who had grown up in England and was largely unknown to the Scots, and Scotland was largely unknown to him. So, But by the end of that decade, by the end of the 1630s, uh, Scotland and the other uh, kingdoms were engulfed in a civil war, and all of that, uh, the, the, that, that crisis that started the civil war began right here in St Giles. What happened in, in 1637 to get the people of Edinburgh so angry? Uh, if I can sort of go, go back a little while, mm-hmm. the basic history. Um, although Scotland had been Presbyterian since 1560, James VI had tried to introduce various forms of Episcopalianism, various forms of bishops. It ebbed and flowed depending on his how powerful he was at the time, his situation, obviously. Like most Scottish monarchs before that, he had he had come to the throne as a minor, so there had been regencies and various factions. But certainly by 1618, 1620, he had opposed bishops on the church. Uh, there were the Articles of Perth, which were particularly controversial, uh, the most prominent one of which was that uh, congregants were now required to kneel during communion. Uh, the Presbyterians had tried to do things as differently from Roman Catholicism as possible. In the early days, they had even required men to keep their hats on in church. It was If Rome did it, they, they were doing they the opposite. didn't do it. That's really interesting. But gradually over the decades, some, some of that dropped away, but one of the main things they insisted on was that you did not kneel during the services. But one of the articles of Perth said, yes, you did have to kneel to take communion. 
and he had also introduced bishops. Originally, they had not had a great deal of influence or power. They had been subject to the presbyteries in their districts. So when Charles I came to be crowned, and uh, it said he was the first adult who had been crowned King or Queen of Scots uh, in a, since the early 1400s, so nobody was entirely sure what to do. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the things he did was he knelt down in order to be crowned, and he obviously thought that would be an act of humility, but for the Scots this was appalling that he was kneeling in what was supposed to be a sort of holy uh, service. And whereas James had tried to be fairly diplomatic, he hadn't pushed his reforms too far, uh, although maybe following the five articles, had he, had he lived, he might have tried to take things further. But certainly Charles did not, have, did not share his diplomatic nature. And as far as he was concerned, the Scottish Church was just going to become a branch of the Church of England, essentially. Uh, James had always shied away from too much liturgical, too much doctrinal uh, reform. Uh, beyond the five articles, which had come fairly late on. But Charles was determined, essentially, to make the Scottish Church fully Episcopal, and the most prominent aspect of that was the prayer book, essentially a Scottish version of the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. Uh, so after 1633, he had created a bishop, the Bishop of Edinburgh, as I say, by this time, David Lindsay. Uh, he had appointed the dean, originally uh, Strother, as he had died not long afterwards and been replaced by Dr. James Hanna. And it was Hanna who was charged with reading the prayer book at a service in 1637. Uh, Charles I and uh, Laud, the Archbishop of Canterbury, came up to introduce it, as it were. But when the, uh, the service was held in St. Giles, in the Western End, uh, there was a riot. That's undeniable. Exactly how the riot started is slightly more uncertain. The popular story is that it began because a lady sitting in the uh, congregation called the Janet or Jenny Geddes picked up the stool in which she was sitting and hurled it at Dean Hannah's head, uh, allegedly saying, you'll nay say a mass in my lug, you won't say mass in my ear, uh, equating <laughs> Anglicanism with Roman Catholicism. Whether that actually happened, we don't know. Like many, uh, all, many of the best stories, it may well be apocryphal, <laughs> but there was definitely a riot. Uh, the bishop and the king and everyone else had to flee... Uh, Certainly things were thrown at them and so forth. It's possible that the Jenny Geddes story arose because it, the, um, the riot had been organised by nobles and others who were opposed to the prayer book and in order to deflect blame away from them, they said, oh, it wasn't us, it was just this random woman in the congregation. <laughs> a sort of display of popular uh, sentiment, how unpopular this all was with the general people. So don't... Uh, don't blame us. us. Yes. <laughs> Why do you think the the people were so opposed specifically to the, the prayer book? I think it was just emblematic of the change. Uh, for all the um, control that the Kirk did uh, possess over their ordinary lives, the majority of the people were loyal to it. They did believe in it. Mm -hmm. And for them, it just... I think it was a step too far. Many of uh, the reforms brought in by James VI did not really affect the ordinary mm -hmm. people too much. It would have affected the landowners, affected the ministers, but uh, most people may not even have been that aware of things like the five mm -hmm. articles. Certainly, even after they were brought in, they were not always very rigidly enforced. Ministers were required to abide by them, but 
uh, not always so much everybody else. But the prayer book was something which everybody had to be involved with every, every week. Exactly. So. Every time they came to church, it was, it was going to be read out. So there was a riot, and what happened next? Uh, the king and the bishops retreated. Um, there were riots throughout the country, uh, some more successful than others. In St Andrews, again, mm-hmm. uh, the bishop there was pelted and had abuse hurled at him when he read it out. It's said that in Abrecon, the bishop basically held the congregation at gunpoint while, while he read out the, uh, <laughs> yes. the necessary part that story. Of, of the prayer book. So a, a general assembly was called. One of the effects of James VI reforms was that general assemblies were only supposed to be called by the king. But at this stage, the Kirk had decided, we're just going to do our own thing. Uh, and they effectively just decided that they were going to abolish the bishops, not going to accept these reforms, and that's what led to the drafting and the signing of the National Covenant. Uh, certainly there are historians who have suggested that Charles should have been more severe if he had just hanged a few of the uh, ringleaders. Maybe it would all have died away. I suppose the way it played out, things couldn't have gone any worse for Charles, so... Maybe he should have tried a different tack, but who can say what would have happened if he had gone down that route? For some of our listeners who might not be familiar with it, could you explain what is the National Covenant? Yes, in the early early 1638, uh, this General Assembly decided they were going to make another further declaration. There was a a long tradition of this uh, in Scottish Presbyterianism, um, most famously in 1580, we had had what was called the King's Confession or the Negative Confession. Uh, at that time, the young James VI was seen as following un- falling under the influence of some, some of his favourites who were suspected of having Catholic sympathies. Mm-hmm. So he asked uh, John Craig, who was another minister associated with St Giles, to draft this declaration in which he pledged his commitment to Presbyterianism as practised in Scotland. So the National Covenant very much drew on this negative confession. It formed the first part of it. One of the things they were careful to do was not to directly criticise the King or his reforms. What they said was, we are just re-emphasising this declaration made by Charles' father in 1580, in which he said the Presbyterian Church would continue as it was. So it was a sort of backdoor criticism Mm -hmm. of any reform. Drafted by Alexander Henderson at that time was a minister in Lucas, near St Andrews, subsequently became minister of St Giles, and there was also a legal, political uh, aspect to it mm-hmm. as well. So it was essentially just a declaration defending the Presbyterian principles, defending the church as it has existed in Scotland before Charles had tried to introduce the prayer book and the bishops. And the National Covenant became a hugely important document, is yes. that right? Originally signed in Greyfriars Kirkyard, like uh, many aspects of history, there's a sort of romantic view of everybody flooding in to sign it. It was probably originally just the aristocrats who signed the first version, but copies were made for every borough, every parish uh, in Scotland. This would have been several hundred copies at that time, and sent out to, uh, for everyone to sign it, everyone who wanted to. Again, there are certainly stories that in the southwest, which subsequently became... Uh, one of the main areas of what we call the Covenanters, people signed it in their own blood and so forth. 
I was going to say, we have a wonderfully romantic painting at Gladstone's Land of it being signed in, in Greyfriars. Um, and yeah, it's, it's people everywhere, and, and it's, it's clearly been painted a good deal later and sort of very romanticising that period of history. But I think the fact that it is romanticised in that sense gives you an idea of how, how it, it caught the imagination of the people at the time. It did. It wasn't, of course, universal. Um, in some parishes, it more or less became a sort of loyalty test. You had to sign the covenant or else you would suffer some uh, negative consequence. Mm-hmm. Certainly some of the, uh, the nobles who were true to the king uh, had sympathies with Anglicanism, conveniently found they had business in London, which meant they weren't around to, to sign it. But many of them did. Uh, the version that we have here in St Giles, which was signed in Linlithgow, uh, was signed by James Graham, uh, Marcus of Montrose, who famously became the King's General uh, during the, uh, the War of the Three Kingdoms, uh, several other people. Uh, there's uh, one of the uh, DLs of Binns, the ancestors of a Tam DL, famous Labour politician. And indeed, I, th- I believe his son also became a King's General. But uh, yes, it, w- it was a very popular document. Um, Yes, there was coercion in some places, but the majority of people who signed it signed it because they did believe in it. And I suppose just to um, just to finish the story, what what's the sequence of events that led from the signing of the National Covenant to the beginning of the, I suppose in Scotland we say the Bishops' Wars, but in... Yes, well, the, the Bishops' Wars were a sort of prelude to, to the Civil War, the, mm-hmm. the English Civil War, the War of the Three Kingdoms. Charles essentially refused to accept the General Assembly and the National Covenants, abolition of the bishops and so forth. He raised an army. The Covenanters, as they became known, raised an army. Uh, There were two bishops' wars. The first one was barely a war at all. There was a brief skirmish. The second one, slightly more bloody, although it was helped by the fact that a large chunk of the English army managed to drown trying to cross a river uh, invading Scotland. But the Covenanters emerged triumphant and it was to raise money to pay for these bishops' wars that Charles had to go to the English Parliament to try and raise revenues which led to that Parliament famously refusing him the, uh, the credit which led to him trying to close the Parliament down, arrest members of Parliament and so forth which led to what we used yeah. to call the English Civil War, we, we now call the War of the Three Kingdoms, of the three kingdoms. to emphasise the Scottish and Irish mm. components. This has been really fascinating. I've really enjoyed learned it. a lot. I, yeah, me too. <laughs> um, and great to talk to someone who's obviously knows uh, so much about the the building and the and the, the document. You said we've got a copy of yes. the National Covenant here. Is um, so on, on public display. We keep it behind a curtain just to uh, protect it from the light. But uh, I say that one was sent out to Linlithgow mm-hmm. to be signed. Um, it's on on a form of animal skin. Some of my colleagues insist it's deer skin, some of them insist it's calf skin, so I just say animal skin to, uh, to be diplomatic. But, uh, they famously signed by Montrose, who was later, who, after fighting against the king in the Bishops' Wars, fought for the king uh, in Scotland when the English Parliament, when the Covenanters allied with the English Parliament, was finally uh, executed just outside by his old enemy, Argyll, the leader of the Covenanters, and then rehabilitated after the Restoration and buried in St Giles in 1661. And I suppose if any of our listeners have not been to St Giles before, you absolutely should. It's a, it's a beautiful church, um, and next time you're in, do go and have a look at the, the National Covenant. The, the number of people from Edinburgh who tell us they've never been in here before when they do finally set foot is uh, surprising. 
Is there anything else that you would like to ask? No, I think that's I think that's everything. I think you've it's been a really good insight and a really good sort of setup for William Struthers, which we'll be talking about elsewhere in the episode. Very welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. That was our conversation with Robin McCaig, the Thistle Chapel assistant at St Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh. Up next is a recording with a few NTS volunteers and staff members of a transcript of a meeting of the Kirk Session of the High Kirk of St Giles in 1617, discussing the introduction of the Five Articles of Perth. The elders are refusing to continue to serve communion if people are required to kneel, and the clergy are taking them to task over this stubbornness. Our man, the Reverend William Struthers, then Minister of the High Kirk, is the leader of the clergy in this debate. He is the one, who you will hear, who asks the elders whether they know the Greek word for deacon. In this recording, William Struthers is voiced by Lewis Robertson. We will no longer serve the bread and wine if the congregation is required to kneel. You know that we were ready I before, but this novation is the occasion for men's unwillingness now. Men cannot serve contrary to their mind. John, we thought something of you before, but now we know what is in you. Think you men will serve contrary to their conscience? Bartle, we thought something of you before. Now we count nothing of you. Bartle, hold your peace. And you are stillest, you are wisest. This is a strange thing. You'll have us serve whether it be reason or not. Sir, let us alone. I suffered enough of you last day. I say to thee, man, thou art a very... Anabaptist. What, sir? Knowing you the office of a deacon? I'll examine you presently. Uh, yes, sir. I trow I know something. What is it? To serve the tables. What is the cause of you to not do it, then? Because you have left Christ's institution. For you will be wiser in Christ and setting down a better form of your own. Oh, horrible blasphemy! Oh, horrible blasphemy! If you would serve, wherefore have thou left us? We left you not till you left the truth. <sighs> know ye the sixth of Acts, what the word deacon means? Know ye the Greek word? I say, man, you are our servants. We know nothing. We must go to John Means Booth and buy books and get a lesson from him. They will learn us what we shall do. Have you read the sixth of Acts? You would serve at tables. You think yourselves very wise. Would to God we had as mickle wisdom amongst us ministers as every one of you thinks you have. We served I before you came in and took our place over our heads and would serve yourselves. I shall keep this the role of elders. The king's majesty shall be informed. There cannot be a king in the country if this be suffered. We know now who are our persecutors. Hold your tongue. There is too much spoken. I command you silence, sir. You may not command me silence in this place. <gasps> what say ye, sir? I command you silence. Sir, you may not lawfully command me silence in this place. You're but a sessioner here. You may not reign over us. <sighs> oh, what say ye? I shall let you wit, sir. I'm more than a sessioner. You're but a very false knave. You're but a gawk. I shall fasten your feet, sir. I can bear all that, sir, and all that you can do to me, and more too, sir, but I will not hold my tongue. Oh, 
that conversation was taken from a, a record of the Kirk session of St. Giles, um, and, uh, and, and we found it in the, the book called Edinburgh by Michael Fry. I don't know if anybody has read this book, but apart from anything else, it, it includes a lot of these sorts of quotations. Mm-hmm. Um, he has he's, he's done a lot of that sort of research and has lots of, of cultural references and, and quotations and that sort of thing. So, and when I, when I read it, I thought, we need to, uh, we need to record that. <laughs> we need to reenact this. Apart from anything else, you, you can get an idea of what sort of character William Struthers was. He was the one, um, the leader of the clergyman. He was the one who was telling the, um, putting down the, uh, the elders and pulling rank, saying, you know, have you read the sixth of Acts? Um, so that's our, that's our man, William mm-hmm. Struthers. Um, we, we've got a few bits of, of housekeeping to do. Um, first out, I'd like to make a, a shout out to, to Callum, to one of our, possibly our youngest listeners. So, uh, so shout out to Callum and thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode as well. Um, on that note, please do continue to write in. The email address is... Gladstone's land at nts.org.uk. Thanks, Kate. Yes, so that's that's the email address. Please do write in if there's a question you'd like to have read out, or uh, if you have some a comment on mm-hmm. any of the episodes. We really love to hear from you, and and we'll we'll read you out on the podcast. I have to encourage you, as always, to pass the pod. Mm-hmm. Um, these things only get. Uh, heard about uh, by word of mouth and the more people listen the more we can do the more impact we can hopefully have and um this is actually our our penultimate episode for this season next episode is going to be the 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 last episode and we'll wrap things up um Mm -hmm. where we'll sort of do wrap up the story of of Gladstone's land and for now um, for we, now we will be yeah. back in September that's the plan with a second season but we're going to have a little break over the summer so do tune in next time uh, it'll be a fun episode as well <laughs> we've um, we're going to get some of the friends of the podcast back on and we'll have a uh, we'll have a we'll have yeah, a good a good time um so i think that's all we've got to say about that mm-hmm. so uh, uh from me thomas and from me kate it's uh, it's goodbye see you Thank next you. time You've been listening to the Gladstone's Land podcast with me, Thomas Ware, and my co-host, Kate Stevenson. It was produced by me with support from the National Trust for Scotland. Our guest this week was Robin McCaig, the Thistle Chapel assistant at St. Giles Kirk. And you also heard Keith and Lewis, as well as Anna, uh, in in the scene from the Kirk session. Um, uh, thanks also to the Reverend Dr. Stephen Holmes for contributing to this episode. Our music is Apollinaris Inclicti by Anibale Stabile, recorded by the Tudor Consort and licensed under Creative Commons. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find Gladstone's Land on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and online at www.nts.org.uk slash gladstones hyphen land. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.